0: Best tool ever devised. For understanding how the world works. Science is a very of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the node. Science is a collaborative enterprise spanning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. So Hi everybody, welcome to the next installment of Blue Psycon, Blue Marble Space Science Conversations. This is the podcast series that features the research ideas and philosophies of the members and friends of the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. I'm Jacob Park-Misra, thanks so much for joining us uh, this episode. If you would like to learn more about our research institute you can check us out on the web at bmsis.org and you can listen to previous editions of our podcast at bmsis.org slash podcast. If you are out there listening in podcast land, we want to hear from you. Send us emails. Tell us what you like about the show. Tell us what you hate. Tell us your favorite scientist that you would love to hear from. Uh, you can email us at podcast at bmsis.org. Uh, drop us a line. You can find us on iTunes. You can uh, view previous shows on our website. We have a uh, wonderful show for you today. Our own Betul Kassar has joined us. She's going to tell us about some of her research in experimental evolution. And um, so, Betul, please welcome.
1: Um, Hi, Jacob, and hello, everyone.
0: Well, please just uh, introduce yourself a little bit and then tell us what exactly is experimental evolution.
1: Experimental evolution allows us to monitor organisms as they evolve right in front of our eyes. So it's a system that we set up most of the time in the laboratory with organisms that we either modify to answer specific questions or organisms that we a priori know something about in under environments that we
0: control. I neglected to mention that you are of course are doing this research uh, at Harvard and you're currently a postdoc there I believe.
1: I am finishing my postdoc. I will be um, leading my uh, research team starting October at Harvard. We will be doing experimental evolution with a bit of a synthetic biology touch, with, under the scope of astrobiology.
0: That is really excellent, and uh, I think rumor had it that, that uh, you got some was it funding from Templeton that enabled that.
1: Yes, it, the, the official announcement will be um, out very soon. Uh, but yes, that's the that's you heard right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, that's very exciting and, and very exciting to be able to have your own lab to, to focus on these issues with your own own team. Uh, certainly very exciting for, for a young and up-and-coming scientist. Um, so tell us a little bit more about your work. What are the main themes that you hope to address with your team?
1: My research is in the intersection between, it's a very interdisciplinary work, and uh, it's an overlap between biology and geology. At least the, the project that I will talk about today is an overlap between um, biology and geology. Um, so I will talk, uh, the, the main theme is to use the current organisms as a, a fossil record in, in terms of using them to for, for us to know about the past and how, how the, Earth's condition or the life's condition were back uh, back in the past and we are talking millions of years of time scale the approach that, um, that a theme that, that I think I'm going to go after in this talk is the is the uniformitarianism approach that um, that geologists are very familiar with It follows the approach of looking for the modern processes today especially in the rock record and use these as an analog to understand the same processes at the end and of course, this this approach assumes that the evolutionary processes mm-hmm. remained largely the same throughout the evolution of life. But um we can probably the light bulbs are going popping out in your head right now. This is only only partly true. Earth was very different back in the past. So, to what extent can we apply what we learn from today's systems to understand the past? And that very question is uh, one of the main um, questions of my research team right now
0: that's that's really fascinating we can keep going and you can tell us a little bit more in detail about what you plan to do and then everybody else uh, please feel free jump in at any time just keep this conversational if you have any questions especially if there's a topic that uh you want to know more about or you know we have a very broad audience here please jump in and um, i'm sure the tool will happy be happy to explain it to you so take us in a little bit more detail like how does this work uh and, and what what are some of like the the main conclusions that you hope to to draw from your immediate research
1: um, well first and foremost the main goal is to understand the dynamics between environments and uh, and uh, ancient genes that we use right now. So there are there are a couple uh, systems and technologies rather that I use that I need to introduce you guys to. And one of them is experimental evolution. And uh, and I know that a lot of evolutionary biologists get skills when I call evolution as a tool, but experimental evolution after all is now very often commonly utilized as a tool in the laboratory that allows us to answer very fundamental evolutionary questions. Because as I said in the beginning, we can use modern organisms and evolve them under controlled environments. That could be an environment, say, an alien environment and, you know, a, a planetary environment that you want to simulate in the laboratory. And then you can put a microorganism in this environment and then watch how the microorganism adopts under this environment. So it is extremely relevant when it comes to our exploration in other space. And especially if we want to pursue biological systems and how want to understand how biological systems may may adopt in, in different planetary conditions and uh so my goal is is to con- is to connect the synthetic genes in my case they are ancient with the environment in which they live in because the main theme is to understand how was life back then back in the past and why is life the way it is now? Why are things the way they are now? Why is it not in any other way? I'm really obsessed with this question. I will understand why and how, but firstly, really why? And what really happened? And we are very limited in answering that question, right? When you're, evolved, when you're evolving with something that involves the past, past happened once, it's erased. You know, we have some traces. As a geologist, you know it, I'm looking at Sandro when I'm saying that, that, you know, it's a race where well, we have some record. But when it comes to biology, we really don't have any clue. We, because we have life and there's one life and that's what we look at right now. But we know that it's been shaping for millions of years. So how do we access what happened in the past? So as biologists, we have this tool called phylogenetics. It's um it's a very probably one of the most romantic notions that can come out of of science. <laughs> uh, that is that all life is connected, and we are all share, we are all sitting on the, the tips of these branches and we all share a common root and uh, an ancestor, a last universal common ancestor, and, and all these branches represent different animals and or different organisms, different taxa. So phylogenetics as a whole, gives us some idea about the extinction and what really happened in the in the past, the speciation events, so we know more or less, of course, this is all powered by the geological data of what happened in the past. But then when it comes to understanding or rather accessing the molecules that existed in the past, we are very limited. So with that, about 25 years ago, I used to give this talk First, when I was first exposed to this method, it was five years ago. So I used to say twenty years ago. Now I can say twenty-five years ago. Steve Benner, who is also one of the pioneers in in our field in astrobiology, also a pioneer of synthetic biology. Actually, he's I think the person who coined the term synthetic biology. Uh, first demonstrated that we can use phylogenetics and phylogeny analysis to access. The ancestral sequence space, sequences of the modern genes. So, what, what am I talking about here? So, I have a DNA sequence, you have a DNA sequence, and Apple has a DNA sequence. And all these organisms share an ancestor that had some kind of ancestral form of this DNA sequence. So, how do we get to that DNA sequence? Well, as Steve Benner demonstrated, and as was suggested by Linus Pauling, and and zucker candle this was back in the in the 60s in their very very nice paper that i I can i'm happy to share this with anyone um who's interested the idea is to use bayesian statistics and bootstrapping methods and bootstrap our way back into the past and and resurrect the sequence that the ancestor harbored basically site by site predict What the ancestor of my DNA and the apple's DNA looked like. So it's a very computational method in the beginning, and since then, back in twenty-five years, we made, we you know we paved, we carved a lot of ways. We came really far. Now we don't only just look at these sequences in the computer screen, but we can synthesize these sequences. We can put them into plasmids, a very common molecular biology tool we can put these sequences, these plasmids, inside organisms, we can express meaning, we can make so much of these proteins and then study them biochemically outside of their cell environment. And then if you were to pick a protein that is relevant historically, and if this protein has a phenotype, has a behavior that you can link to some kind of environmental condition, then you can to a degree estimate looking at this molecules behavior how did this molecule lived in the past steve Benner has a very good analogy uh, also in his um, in his wonderful book he talks about um he makes the analogy that how linguists use words to reconstruct ancestral words so what linguists do is that say in his example it's the word snow that they use the english word snow and then they pick the Swedish version of the snow and then create a phylogenetic tree for the word snow. And then look at the ancestor word, what these all cultures shared. What was the ancestral word? It turns out it's snake. That was the ancestral word for snow. And it so happens that all the cultures that use the word snow were the cultures that had snow. So if you don't have snow, you don't need to use the word snow. It doesn't need to be in your record. It's just like, like that in biology. When you have the word in your system, whatever the word, in our case, a protein, is responsible for, you are experiencing that condition.
0: That's a great analogy, actually, with linguistics. I really like that. And I think that helps, helps me understand how you identify which particular genes, at least in an analogous sense, might be of interest. But so, there's a question from Dimitra and Sanjoy. Dimitra asks, How do you determine the timeline computationally? And Sanjoy is asking, saying he's curious about this too. How does one assign an age to a gene?
1: That's a very good question. The age the, the AH is estimated by the trees that we are using, and these trees are calibrated based on the geological data. So, once geologists find a fossil that's, that allows us to recalibrate the tree, the ages of the the sequences that we reconstruct also varies so there's always an estimate of plus and minus um when we give the age or estimate the age of the the gene so it is based on the phylogeny which is calibrated through the molecular clock studies that are calibrated through fossils that geologists um find
0: okay oh, thank you and And I'll let you continue, but uh, maybe at the end we we could revisit the molecular clock hypothesis. Is that something, as a non-biologist, I've heard little bits about as far as whether it is a valid assumption to to think that the rate of mutation would have been constant uh, over time. And and I I, I don't know if there's a divide perhaps between biologists and geologists in how they think about the molecular clock.
1: Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, okay. So I, as I talked about, we are using this methodology. The name of this system is ancestral sequence reconstruction. Steve Benner refers it as uh, paleo uh, genetics very often, uh, but ancestral sequence reconstruction is also adopted by the labs that currently use this system, and it is increasingly getting very common. Experience. It's very highly adopted. A technology nowadays, it's becoming almost a standard when uh, we want to understand what the ancestor of any gene or protein looked like. So, that's one tool that is now in our shopping basket. So, I love the fact that we can use ancestral sequence reconstruction to estimate the past states of genes and proteins. So, where do we go from here? As I said in the beginning, I am interested in. The connection between the genes and the environment so how do we understand the dynamics between environment and the genes so for those folks who are again outside of our field it is actually quite challenging when you study proteins to to really connect their behavior to the environment the main reason is by definition biochemistry is a very reductionist approach. We take these proteins outside of their biological system when we analyze them in the laboratory. We kind of look at them in a test tube, like take a snapshot of their function and then try to make inferences of what we see and how is that connecting to the environment. And most of the time, biochemists don't really, or currently are not really interested in those questions anyway. We look at the protein. We look at how it functions. We see what affects the protein's function. And then that's, that's pretty much how it works. And then there are other systems where you evolve the function of a protein for a certain task you want the protein to perform, which is synthetic evolution or directed evolution. But again, that's it's a wonderful tool. It's very applied. But for me, I wanted to understand how can we actually use organisms to tell us the story of life. So for that, I wanted to carry out a pilot work. I um, I had access to various ancestral sequences uh, that was previously published and available. The, the data of all these proteins were available, um, and I wanted to see what would happen if I take an ancient protein and an ancient gene and then put this ancient gene inside a modern organism, and then see how the modern organism and this ancient gene will interact. There there were a couple caveats into this, or I would say points, important points at this point, which is, number one, I picked a gene that is essential, meaning if the organism doesn't have this gene, it dies. It's a very dramatic. <laughs> of putting it but organism needs this gene to survive so if you take an essential gene outside of its system and then put in a a one million year older version of that what happens and number two after if the organism survives with this ancient component and if i were to look at um the adaptation between this ancient gene and the rest of the genome what would i see so let's use experimental evolution and then see how would this organism behave and and how would the ancient and the modern hybrid communicate. So that was the the pilot uh, work that I've done uh, back when I was at Georgia Tech. Uh, I used an organism, uh, it's a very well studied lab, or it's an organism that's very well studied in the lab, it's uh, E. coli. And I used an ancient form of an essential gene, which is elongation factor. It functions in the ribosome, the protein synthesis machinery of the cell.
0: Hey, Betul, I have a quick question. Do you just order the ancient gene from a catalog, or <laughs> <laughs> how do you get it?
1: Yeah, so I I went to the lab that had uh, that had reconstructed these ancient sequences. But actually, you say a very good. You, I think this what you said is going to be the future. I think uh, there are a lot of uh, studies that I keep hearing that people are uh, working on databases that will make um, make scientists to access these ancient sequences so easy, that, that will allow us to access these sequences very quickly. Um, so so just like when you nowadays use a database and you wanna see the a homolog sequence in another organism, you will be able to put a date and get a snapshot of the sequence of that uh, gene, that how it was a billion years ago, if it existed back then. So it's going to be a yeah, very commonly used approach, I think. That's what I, I know that there are a couple databases that now the postdocs and some really ambitious graduate students are working on that they want to make this uh, ancestral sequence reconstruction just open for everyone and uh, so that we can go to the next step. Or we can, you know, have access to our answers to our questions. We get a step closer because the, but, the but even so, but, so
0: you get the ACGC sequence and then use a machine to reconstruct it. Or
1: yes, I, guess so I have there, no idea
0: what the process is to actually oh, get I see, a I see, gene I see. Okay, in so, your plate. Like.
1: So I will go to the very basic then. So what you do is you say that you are interested in the, you know your favorite gene, and uh, and then you. We basically start by collecting all the sequences that we can find, mostly about thirty or forty, just to start. Uh, sequences from a variety of organisms. So, in my case, for example, I worked with bacterial ancestors. So I uh, collected, you know, you can collect a bunch of sequences that represents different microbial organisms, and then you create your phylogeny data, a phylogeny tree, phylogenetic tree, which is the, the very first step of creating any tree anyway that you need. Sequences from different organisms. You yeah, and then uh, and then once you create the tree, then we have uh, we have different uh, computer programs. For example, PAML or Mr. Base that uh, basically just you, you basically um, use your tree as an input in these programs, and then. Uh, by pointing out the notes you get you get the alignments and then you can um estimate the ancestor the it's it literally appears in your screen what the, the likely ancestors are and every site is uh, weighted so it gives you a statistical likeness for all the ancestors are likely to be the ancestor and how likely is that the system is able to create your ancestor so it's not like your one sequence magically appears, you get a pool of sequences and out of those uh, because you have a statistical confidence value for every node in sequence, then you can'm i sorry recite you can uh, then estimate whether it is likely that this whichever the sequence is the ancestor that you're looking for so sometimes, for example, for certain genes the older that you go, for example, if I'm looking for an ancestor of gamma proteobacteria, the ancestor of the gamma proteobacteria will be way younger than the ancestor of all proteobacteria, right? So, so you can see that you, you can go older and older depending on the input you have in your tree. If you only have gamma proteobacterial offspring, then you will have gamma proteobacterial ancestor generated by this program. And most of the time, when you are dealing with times that are younger, depending on the gene, of course, there is higher confidence value. As you diverge by adding more taxa on your tree, more divergence, then the ancestor becomes less and less likely to be the most confident sequence.
0: So I guess I understand. Thank you for how you created computationally. But you translate that into a real cell, right? You put that. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, so
1: exactly. So then you have your sequence. Say that we have an average of two, three hundred amino acid sequences. You you generated it, okay? Uh, And then you send this to a company that synthesizes this gene for you, this this gene sequence for you. And they, um, if you specify it, they codon optimize. They optimize the DNA sequence for your future model organism that you're going to use in the lab so you can tell them hey i'm going to use this i'm going to use an yeast cell and i want this to function in Saccharomyces. they will code not optimize the dna so that your sequence will function in Saccharomyces. and then they send you this uh in a, in a plasmid which i can maybe say like a, it's almost like a skeleton i would say the backbone for the dna to kind of hang on to it has markers and everything so you can you know that you know, you can transfer it into your cells and then generate so much of them. So the, the next steps are very traditional molecular biology tools.
0: Very cool, thank you, I get it now.
1: Yeah, so so that's, it is very, it's very true. It's from, from letters in your computer to actual tube that includes your ancient DNA on your uh, doorstep in a month.
0: That's crazy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, It's it's, uh, it's very, very cool. It's like your grand your great 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 grandfather is at the door you got mail so again as i said it's it's very common uh it's a very for the past decade we've seen beautiful examples of how we can um, use these ancient proteins to learn about evolution how to learn about specific questions in evolution um, Joe Thornton from uh, University of Oregon, now at Chicago has beautiful beautiful papers um where he talks about how the patterns of evolution changed even with, within 300 million years um of of certain protein the hormone receptors and how they are related to environmental change and everything so uh, so when i uh, joined this field uh, there were already that was already you know a very general acceptance of the system but what was missing is that we didn't know whether these genes would even function inside a modern organism. So so the, so the difference is once, once you get this DNA sequence in the plasmid, you put them inside the cell, but only to, you already know that these genes are gonna function because they're codon optimized. So the E. coli can produce so much of that, and then you can purify all these proteins and analyze for your study. But you don't know whether the bacteria would actually function in a way that, that it would depend on this ancient component if it did not have its endogenous gene structure intact on its genome. So what I did is I I didn't I didn't care about the protein structure or anything at that point. I wanted to see if I remove the elongation factor that is co-evolving with E. coli for billions of years, that is living happily in its genome right now if i take that gene out and then put the ancestor that is reconstructed through phylogeny inside the genome number 1 would i even get viability would, would bacteria and the ancient gene communicate would languages clash because see you can you can now going back to our language analogy you can think that this gene that is reconstructed is speaking a dialect that is extinct Okay, it's like a a million year old. But then it's an essential protein, and essential proteins evolve slowly. So is a million year, is a a billion year, I'm sorry, not a million, billion year, a long time for the bacteria to forget its past? Would the bacteria still be able to communicate with its own ancestor? Or is it already too late?
0: So we do have a question. Sanjoy types in, you know, is there a, an ethical discussion to be had about whether or not we should reconstruct ancient life? And I suppose the uh, you know something like Jurassic Park is maybe the very extreme example that that, uh, that gets portrayed in popular culture. Very different than putting an ancient gene into an E. coli cell. But are there any ethical issues to consider between those two extremes?
1: Well, if the question is, should we have an ethical discussion? The answer is always yes it is really unethical to answer that question as no
0: fair enough so <laughs> what, are, what would you say some of the ethical issues are
1: <laughs> well actually um for, for the ethical concerns i would rewind all the way back to the ethical concerns that synthetic biology is a field experiences and not necessarily the issue component because we, we are we, we, we estimate these sequences to have existed in the past, but they are in no ways different than, as a DNA sequence than any DNA sequence that we are, we are using in the laboratory. Now, if the question is, um, should we regulate um, the, sy- the synthetic components that are in the laboratory, and should we be concerned about the degrees that we go when we make things that did not exist in the nature to start with? Um, yes, of course. And 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 there is a big community and there are a lot of um, scientists involved in, in these discussions and also uh, now there are ethics committees and councils um, that discusses about the ethical aspects of synthetic biology as a whole. Uh, now that we also have the new advances in CRISPR, we can clone things so easily and that, that will, the future is here. The future was yesterday. That's how things are now. And we we need to be concerned about, and we need to think deeply about what do we want to do with this knowledge and tools that we have in hand.
0: I think that's a great way to look at it. Does anybody else have any questions to ask the tool? I I really appreciate this conversation. I think I have a much better understanding of, of the overall picture of what you're, trying to do and how you do it and and even the step-by-step description you gave was, was really enlightening for a non-biologists to understand how do you how do you go from from numbers to to cells is really quite mind-boggling
1: yeah and as not an, uh, next again the the step was to understand the, the ancient modern communication pathway through experimental evolution by evolving those ancient modern Hybrid organism in the lab and dissecting the adaptive pathways. And now with the uh, with my new lab, I will be able to take this the more systems level. I will be able to evolve older genes, uh, organisms that harbor older genes, and more um, parallel in the more more statistically rich environment and condition. And uh, so I'm very, very excited about that. And also we're going to be extending the work to different genes that not only um, cause the cells to be sick, but have great relevance to uh, studies in uh, uh, biogeochemistry, but geobiochemistry, I'm still getting the terms right, geobiochemistry. and, um, And that will be very exciting.
0: We have a question from Priti, uh, who asks, what other genes have you used for your studies other than that of elongation factor?
1: Oh, perfect. So that's exactly what I was talking about. And uh, I presented, I had a poster at Upcycon very briefly presenting this. Uh, We are now extending this work to, um, to, uh, to, uh, most of you probably are familiar with, uh, is uh, to Rubisco enzyme um so it's a um it i, I mean I'm, it's a very significant enzyme for the for our understanding of um the past especially for earth sciences um it's it, rubisco catalyzes the first step of um carbon cycle it's a, it's a very central enzyme for in a photosynthesis essential for uh, carbon fixation and uh, it's even though it's so essential it's an extremely slow functioning enzyme Uh, therefore the the step in calvin cycle that is catalyzed by rubisco is the rate determining step so what we are doing right now is that uh we we reconstructed the um various ancestral forms of rubisco uh and then uh we are as we are uh moving on we are looking at the the protein structure the modeling the likeliness of these sequences so before we even synthesize them first we're looking at how these sequences differ so we're doing a very deep sequence analysis and uh and the next step will be to engineer these ancestral rubiscos on uh modern cyanobacteria and then uh, see if we can um not only look at the ancient phenotype but if whether we can map the response that the bacteria generates with this ancient rubiscope onto the past and see whether we can dissect the uh, key roles in the biogeochemical interpretation of the pre-cambrian isotope signals so we're going to go to the we're going to look at whether we can generate isotope fractionation signals that are um, measured in nature and whether we can generate them in the laboratory using an ancient modern bacterial system that carries an ancient Rubisco, say a, a pre-Cambrian ancient Rubisco.
0: Wow, that's amazing. So do we have any final questions for Batool? As a climate scientist, I keep thinking about like the very end point when you've got, you know, maybe hundreds or thousands of, of these genes that you understand the ancient counterpoints and, you know, could this someday help us to understand? ancient environments at a a macroscopic level? I mean, obviously, the geochemical level is the more immediate um, application. But um, I keep thinking, you know, will this help us understand what the Archean was like?
1: Yeah, exactly. So for me, genome engineering can really benefit. Um, I I think genome engineering and origins of life can create a really nice um, dialect, speaking of dialects and communication. I think uh, we can study perhaps how does the, Ancient behavior change through time by accessing not only the snapshots of these protein behaviors, but also how these how they are how how are they related within the organism, uh, and if we can extend to key proteins and 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 pathways, not just proteins but networks uh, that are of interest to biological and geological studies, for example, the, the rise of oxygen. Uh, I think we I think. I think there's so much from and to learn from life's history.
0: That's actually really interesting. I think the rise of oxygen is the rise of oxygen is one of the signals that you would think might be very clear um, at least in some sense in in a signal like you're looking at in an ancient genes and maybe yeah. there is a big change in expression that that happens across that boundary exactly
1: and if we can um, re- resurrect this protein that binds to oxygen. Uh, and resurrected the version of that that existed before the rise of oxygen. What was that protein doing back then? What was it doing? And how did that translate? what kind of signal signature is it going to leave on the organism? And does that match with what we find on the rocks?
0: I really look forward to uh, to what you find out with that research. This is uh, very exciting. Well, thank you once again, Batul. We very much enjoyed this conversation. Um, listeners, thanks for joining us. This has been Blue Con. You can check us out online again at bmsis.org slash podcast. Uh, send us a message if you're listening to the show, podcast at bmsis.org. Thanks again, and we will see you next episode. Ah. Science replaces private prejudice with publicly verifiable evidence. There's real poetry in the real world science is the poetry of reality we can do science and with it we can improve our lives